Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARK or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARK to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to FYI, the For Your Innovation podcast. Today, we are extremely honored to have Dr. Anishka Chekowitz on. So for a quick bio, because we could spend probably the entire time just doing a bio, Agni is a physician scientist, biotech entrepreneur, 20 years of experience, stem cell biology, translation research. Dr. Chekowitz is also a faculty member in Stanford University's Department of Pediatrics, Hematology, Oncology, Stem Cell Transplantation, and Regenerative Medicine, also a member of Stanford's Institute for Stem Cell Biology and Regenerative Medicine. Dr. Chekowitz completed her PhD work in Developmental Biology at Stanford with Professor Weissman. She then completed her residency in pediatrics at the Boston Children's Hospital and then pursued subspecialty training in pediatric hematology and oncology at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute while simultaneously conducting postdoctoral research with Professor Derek Rossi in collaboration with Dr. David Scadden and got her MD and PhD and bachelor's degree from Stanford. So lifer for Stanford. Um, but that was all incredible. And uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so let's dig in. There's so much to say, but, uh, you know, first, just a welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's lovely to get a chance to speak with you today. Of course. So let's start with your clinical and research interests. So a bit of the how did we get here um, after hearing your incredible bio. So maybe what would be helpful if you could just describe your sort of path to success within Stanford and the transplant medicine ecosystem. Was this something you kind of always knew you wanted to do or thought you would always do or did it kind of surprise you? I guess it's a little bit of both. Um, uh, so I fell in love with transplant medicine at a very early age. I actually had a distant family member um, who was diagnosed with a blood cancer and was offered a bone marrow transplant uh, many, many years ago when I was growing up. Uh, and that first uh, really inspired me to learn more about stem cell uh, transplantation and stem cell medicine. And I started to do research in the area back as a high school student at the University of Minnesota and then really bit the bug. And then as you heard from my bio, uh, I have had a longstanding history uh, at Stanford uh, and first showed up on the farm as an undergrad uh, and had the great privilege of training with Irv Weissman, uh, who is one of the great stem cell scientists uh, and pioneers in the field. Uh, and he further inspired me to continue studying um, uh, stem cells uh, and thinking about how you can apply them for the curative treatment of so many different diseases. And so in some ways, I have been in this area for an incredibly long time, over two decades now. Um, uh, but in other ways, it still continues to um, uh, surprise me that I'm still in this area, that I found it so early uh, uh, and that I continue to learn new things about it um, on a daily basis and continue to think that we're just at the tip of the iceberg and understanding the system and applying it to so many different disease processes. Um, uh, so it's been a wonderful journey um, uh, so far, but still lots of work ahead of us. That's awesome. You know, I guess hearing what you're saying, it sounds like there would have been a lot of challenges and maybe a lot of interesting uh, tidbits along the way. So just wondering if you can share with us maybe some, some of the not so great parts of it and maybe some of the better ones too. Yeah, so I think the road to becoming a physician scientist uh, is just a long one. Um, uh, there's many different parts of the process. In part, that's because uh, both uh, pieces of it, being a physician and being a scientist, take a lot of uh, learning um, uh, and a lot um, uh, of depth to really understand um, uh, those areas and be able to contribute fully. Uh, and when you do both, and you kind of have one plus one that you also have to um, uh, really dive deep on. And so just the path itself has been a, a longer one, given the amount of knowledge um, uh, that one has had to learn and wanted to learn. And 
every part of that process has its own unique components to the journey. Um, uh, everything from graduate school um, uh, to residencies to fellowships um, to being a junior faculty member. And so there definitely have been highs and lows on this journey, um, but I've been incredibly inspired uh, by our patients and by our science. And those are definitely uh, the highlights. Um, while uh, there are some patients who unfortunately really don't do well and some experiments that don't turn out, um, uh, on the flip side, um, uh, there are many moments where you're really motivated uh, to do better um, uh, and to see the impact of the treatments that we have available. And then similarly, uh, every now and then we have some extremely exciting research results um, uh, that really motivate us to continue to work in this area and give us really strong reason to believe that we can transform this field in powerful ways to then influence um, uh, the patients uh, that we see. And so I think it's been a long journey, still at the very beginning of this journey in many ways, um, uh, lots of more work ahead of us uh, with some bumps along the way, uh, but also a lot of inspiration, um, uh, a lot of amazing outcomes for our patients with these types of transplant procedures, and then a lot of amazing data um, uh, that we've generated, especially uh, in the uh, non-genotoxic conditioning space, where we've been able to show that we can completely flip out a blood and immune system without any toxicity in animal models. We will certainly get into that exciting data that you have been a huge contributor and part of. But um, maybe just to take it back a little bit um, to give context kind of into your clinical interests. So, you know, your clinical interests are extremely vast, but among them uh, are bone marrow failure and especially Fanconi anemia and aplastic anemia. So first of all, for anyone on the call who maybe doesn't know what Fanconi anemia or aplastic anemia are, it would be helpful maybe if you could give some context there and maybe just why you became so fascinated with these types of bone marrow failures. Yeah, absolutely. So my interest in these diseases really start from a higher level interest in the hematopoietic system uh, and in the power of hematopoietic stem cells. So these are these uh, very unique cells that can be found in the bone marrow or can be pushed out of the bone marrow into the peripheral blood that have this amazing capacity to be able to self-renew for life and also give rise to the entire blood and immune system. And as uh, many of you know, the blood and immune system has so many different um, uh, reasons um, that it's important. And as we continue to learn about it, we continue to learn more and more ways um, uh, that it is impactful in the generation of macrophages and the generation of microglia. It's interaction with basically every component um, uh, of our body from uh, the very beginnings of life through the aging process. And the blood immune system can go wrong in many different ways, and that can cause a lot of different diseases, uh, ranging from genetic diseases to malignant diseases to autoimmune diseases. Um, uh, and now we're learning more and more about interactions with the cardiovascular system, their neurologic system. So it's really a critical um, uh, system um, uh, that we really want to uh, maintain in an intact state to preserve health for many different people. Uh, and when it goes uh, awry, um, uh, there are so many different diseases um, uh, that unfortunately um, uh, can occur that affect uh, millions of people around the world. Uh, and hematopoietic stem cells are these unique cells that can power that entire system. And so through these transplantation processes, we have the ability um, uh, to replace that blood and immune system um, with these types of uh, cells and then can affect all of these disease processes. And while our research group um, uh, and uh, myself personally uh, study many different aspects of the blood and immune system and its effects in many different diseases, I've started to subfocus really in these bone marrow failure syndromes um, uh, as a subgroup of those many different diseases. And in part, these are areas where the hematopoietic stem cells really fall apart um, uh, and they're not able to maintain that hematopoietic capacity. And so patients unfortunately lose their entire blood and immune system rather than just one aspect of it. And so we've been um, uh, trying to study that better um, uh, in various different mouse models um, and in patient samples to understand how hematopoietic stem cells interact with their microenvironment, how do they preserve that interaction to maintain a healthy blood and immune system, and then where does it go awry um, uh, in these certain um, uh, diseases. And Fanconi anemia is one genetic cause of bone marrow failure syndrome, so that's one of the most common ones. And so that's why we've started to subfocus in that uh, disease. And it's also a cancer predisposition syndrome. These patients have a over 1,000-fold increased risk of cancer compared to other patients. And so it's a unique uh, place to be able to study um, uh, the interactions of the blood and immune system, understand the stability of hematopoiesis and where it falls apart, and then also watch the progression of cancer in an accelerated uh, state to then hopefully learn from that and apply it to many other patients with Fanconi anemia, but also many other um, uh, diseases. And Fanconi anemia, as I mentioned, 
mentioned is a genetic cause of bone marrow failure that is caused by defects in one of 23 different genes that are involved in the Fanconi complex, which is an important DNA repair complex. And so unfortunately, when patients have mutations in any one of those genes, they lose the ability to repair their DNA, leading to bone marrow failure and this increased risk of cancer. And so I feel for these patients and these families who unfortunately just have had the bad luck to acquire mutations in these genes that then have such profound effects. And it's been a neat opportunity to get to study um, uh, these patients and their samples, uh, but also uh, really try to help them in profound ways through our standard of care therapies and through our newer treatments that we've been developing. And then aplastic anemia is kind of a parallel to that. It's kind of a catch-all category for patients um, uh, who have really low blood counts and an empty bone marrow that we don't always understand um, uh, the causes for. And often it's thought to be probably immune-mediated, um, uh, and there's still a lot to learn about what causes that, what occurs in those situations. And so those two groups of diseases uh, both cause bone marrow failure, uh, but for different reasons, um, and so give us different opportunities to study genetic causes versus acquired and potentially immune-mediated causes. Yeah, and as you mentioned, sort of the, the, the hematopoietic stem cell transplants are so important to these patients, but one challenge to them, as you mentioned as well, is the conditioning that has to happen before and you've also been incredibly crucial in defining solutions for hematopoietic diseases, including bone marrow failure, because, you know, one example, you're the scientific co-founder for a company called Magenta Therapeutics. So one, can you kind of give us some background about how you came up with the idea for Magenta? And just by way of a tiny bit of background for Magenta, for anyone who doesn't know, they're developing an antibody drug conjugate. It's essentially for the conditioning for hematopoietic stem cell transplants, amongst other programs. But that's one of the ones we were excited about. Um, and it's designed to really improve the hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. I'm very excited about what Magenta is doing and think it'll be incredibly impactful for our field. As I mentioned, I got into the area of uh, hematopoietic stem cell research and bone marrow transplantation um, uh, many decades ago and was really inspired uh, by some of the visions of Professor Irv Weissman, who was my PhD advisor at the time, who had isolated hematopoietic stem cells and showed that those more purified cells um, uh, could be effective for transplantation with much lower um, rates of graft-versus-host disease, which is one of the larger complications associated with transplantation. Uh, but one of the problems... Um, uh, with purified hematopoietic stem cells uh, was that it was harder to get them to engraft. Uh, and so uh, Professor Weissman had given me the challenge of trying to understand why um, uh, that was. And uh, as a graduate student, had the wonderful opportunity to work with uh, a postdoc, uh, Deepta Bhattacharya and Dan Kraft, to try to understand and explore those barriers um, uh, to hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. And in a series of experiments um, uh, that we now did many years ago, we really showed that your own stem cells compete um, uh, for space with the transplanted stem cells in a hematopoietic stem cell uh, transplantation process. Uh, and so uh, we explored um, uh, that level of competition uh, and we're really looking at what were those types of barriers. And as part of that, uh, showed that we could eliminate that barrier by depleting one's own host hematopoietic stem cells. And when we did that in mouse models, we showed that uh, if you could deplete them uh, with uh, various different types of antibodies, then you can get engraftment uh, of donor stem cells um, uh, without the same type of concerns. Um, uh, you could get very high turnover of the hematopoietic system uh, without any toxicity. And excitingly, uh, not just uh, avoidance of toxicity to various different um, uh, types of organ systems that normally are affected, but also uh, decreased risks um, uh, of graft-versus-host disease and other issues. And so that as a concept has been something that we've been studying now for uh, over a decade and have been working to develop various different types of antibodies body-based conditioning methods that can replace the current genotoxic conditioning that we use today. So right now, before a bone marrow transplant or a hematopoietic cell transplant, uh, patients have to be exposed to total body radiation or genotoxic conditioning, um, uh, such as chemotherapy agents uh, like busulfan. And unfortunately, these cause pretty significant toxicities to patients up front. They cause profound cytopenias, requiring lots of transfusions. They cause all sorts of different types of organ damage. They uh, cause infertility issues, and they cause a delayed uh, immune reconstitution from the new grafts. And with our antibody-based conditioning methods, we've shown that if you just deplete the patient's or mice's own stem cells, then you can get this type of turnover in a completely safe and targeted fashion. And so we initially did these types of studies in mouse models using an antagonistic antibody. And then we further showed that you can make these types of antibodies more potent through antibody drug conjugates. 
and we had a nice paper um, uh, that we published a few years ago um, uh, in collaboration um, with David Scadden's group uh, while I was a postdoc in uh, Derek Rossi's lab uh, showing that anti-CD117 antibody drug conjugates uh, could beautifully be used in such a fashion to safely and effectively uh, turn over the entire um, uh, blood and immune system. And that was really one of the founding pieces of Magenta Therapeutics was to take that concept that we had shown in mouse models and actually turn it into a therapy um, uh, for patients. And what I think is really interesting is that although we do uh, lots of these types of transplant procedures around the world, there's actually a recent article that said that as a field, we've done over 1.5 million hem uh, hematopoietic cell transplants now. All of the agents that we really use today have been borrowed from other areas. Um, uh, there are chemotherapeutics that have been borrowed from uh, treatments of cancer. Uh, there are immune suppressants that have been borrowed from organ transplant. And that's why they don't work perfectly for what we do. And I think why the patients have the toxicities that we have, even though, again, um, these are very curative procedures that can be very effective. And the idea behind Magenta um, was to really develop therapies directly for hematopoietic stem cell transplantation that are ideal and optimal for what we're trying to do um, uh, to maintain that efficacy, but really dramatically change the toxicity profile to make these types of transplants super safe, super easy, outpatient uh, with decreased costs. And so Magenta is on that mission, uh, and one of their programs is around development of antibody drug conjugates, uh, where they've really been working on making the ideal agents from scratch picking the best antibodies, the best toxins, the best linkers, and uh, have been uh, nicely progressing along that journey. Um, uh, they have reported on some uh, nice data in non-human primates um, uh, and recently launched a clinical trial uh, in relapsed refractory AML patients um, uh, testing their CD117 antibody drug conjugate uh, and recently announced um, uh, positive uh, news that likely um, uh, their agent uh, is showing some positive uh, efficacy um, uh, and safety uh, data, but we'll really see what that looks like uh, in the coming weeks when they start to release more of that. Yeah, so I actually was going to ask you about that. So yes, this was about two weeks ago, I think, that um, Magenta announced for the 117 program. As you mentioned, it's a phase one, two targeted treatment, relapsed refractory acute myeloid leukemia, um, myelodysplasia as well. We didn't get too many updates on, on what the data will look like, but I do think we'll see some of that data um, in, in the company's earnings call. So um, any thoughts on, on what maybe we can expect? Um, I think the company is guided that we may hear things about cell depletion, tolerability, drug clearance, target binding. Any ideas on, on kind of what expectations should be or, or um, shall we just wait and be patient? So their study is a dose-finding study and a dose-escalation study. Uh, and so they have announced they've treated multiple patients and are on that um, path um, uh, to dose-escalation. And so I think we'll see uh, how the efficacy um, uh, overlays um, where they are in their dosing curves. But from everything that we've seen in the preclinical setting, these agents can be incredibly powerful and incredibly efficacious. In our uh, mouse models, as I mentioned, um, uh, we've been able to get a complete turnover of the entire blood and immune system with one-time doses of um, proof of concept antibody drug conjugates with really no toxicity. And the results have been so profound that it really leads us to believe this could be game-changing uh, for the field. Uh, and excitingly, uh, in our mouse models, we've shown that these types of agents can cause minimal cytopenias, really minimal uh, toxicity to other organ systems, minimal aplasia to the marrow even, um, uh, and yet again, complete turnover. And so I think that's what we ultimately are likely to see in uh, patient trials uh, with the antibody drug conjugates um, uh, that are directed against the human receptors that are coming out of uh, a uh, magenta as well. But I think one of the challenges uh, is that prior to um, uh, launching into a transplant study, we'll really be able to see those types of effects that, that are transformative for our field. First, we have to really um, uh, try to find uh, the appropriate dose uh, and um, uh, explore this um, uh, in patients pre-transplant um, where they can be tested as single agents. And I think Magenta's strategy of doing this in the relapse refractory uh, MDS and AML patients is a very smart one that is allowing them to treat uh, patients more rapidly and test it as a single agent. Uh, and based upon what they've said, the fact that it uh, is well tolerated and they're showing positive pharmacodynamic activity, I think is extremely exciting. I think those are the biggest uh, concerns. Is, is it really going to be as safe as we've seen in our preclinical models? And is it really um, uh, going to be able to uh, allow depletion of these CD117 positive cells? If the answer to that is yes, um, uh, then I'm very confident that the rest of the results um, uh, will be amazing as well. Uh, and we actually just had a recent abstract at the TCT conference um, uh, comparing the different types of anti-kit agents head-to-head uh, -head in mouse models uh, and really showed that the antibody drug conjugates were above and beyond all other types of uh, reagents uh, in terms of being able to uh, allow this type of rapid turnover um, uh, without any uh, toxicity concerns. 
So very early, but uh, very exciting and potentially compelling data. And and obviously, you know, one of the things I'm really excited about and looking for is that it looks like it was well tolerated, which, as you mentioned, is is one of the most important things that we're, we're all looking out for. Um, the company did disclose on uh, about two weeks ago as well that they would be halting, you know, other programs in pipeline and and maybe kind of pausing some of their earlier target discovery work as well. Also potentially reducing the company's workforce by about 14%. That's going to extend their their cash runway out to about Q2 2024. Just overall, we're just talking about this, you know, kind of positive data that they they seem to have and, and we'll hear more probably at the beginning of May. But how should we think about companies' prospects of continuing? Uh, you know, it's really difficult market conditions, obviously. And so, you know, the need for this company specifically, but others um, to focus away maybe from new target discovery or other programs and needing to reduce staff in order to kind of, you know, keep the lights on. What What's kind of your feeling, uh, general market sentiment, I guess? Yeah, I think it's unfortunate that the markets are where they are and that um, we don't have the same type of resources that we're seeing um, being uh, put into this uh, community that really can uh, use them in very effective ways uh, to transform uh, medicine. I think Magenta is being very smart and strategic about preserving the resources it has uh, to really be able to push forward this incredibly important program. While they are making a number of different types of uh, agents and that can be used to improve the transplant process uh, that I think uh, cumulatively will be incredibly important to really completely change the way that we do transplants. I do also think that this one agent um, uh, is the most important of that batch uh, and being able to uh, have the resources to really show that and uh, and run the trials effectively to um, then be able to garner more resources to advance the other programs uh, is an important part uh, of that strategy. And so uh, while those decisions are challenging decisions, uh, I do applaud them uh, for making them um, to be able to preserve that capital uh, to be able to push forward um, uh, this program. And again, from our preclinical data and the clinic and the preclinical data that the company has shared, this one agent can truly be um, uh, transformative. Really, we've seen no toxicity and the ability to completely um, replace an entire hematopoietic system um, uh, in our models. Which, if you think about how we do transplantation today, um, which is giving patients all these genotoxic agents, having to keep them in the hospital for weeks upon weeks upon weeks, having to give them all of the supportive care, um, uh, and then seeing these awful complications and the costs associated with this whole process. Um, uh, it really is a horrendous process that, again, we're grateful that we have to be able to offer patients because it really can be transformative for their lives and curative of so many diseases. Uh, but when you care for these kids, you appreciate all of uh, the problems associated with it. And if one agent can have such a profound difference in transforming um, uh, that whole process, um, uh, I think it is important to give it the resources um, uh, to really advance appropriately. Um, uh, and then hopefully, again, uh, once they have um, more data, and uh, more support from the investment community um, uh, can restart um, uh, those other programs because I think that they are also important, um, ranging from um, their mobilization agents um, uh, to their uh, other uh, target uh, agents as well. Uh, and again, applaud Magenta uh, for really being thoughtful about the development of this agent um, uh, and trying to make the most optimal agent. I know that there were some delays um, uh, last year as they were uh, changing out one of the components of the CD117 ADC, but I think that Although it slowed them down, it will give them a better profile of this agent. Um, uh, and again, the goal was to make the best drug here um, as that can have the most profound impact on patients. So exciting to see that it's uh, now in some of these patients, exciting to see the data that will come out of it, um, uh, and then hopefully its ability to be used in many other settings um, to garner more data and really transform our field. Awesome. And maybe just for context, you know, we've been talking about hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, but this can also be very important for gene editing. So um, maybe a minute to speak on gene editing, kind of gene therapy and and how that fits into this whole uh, picture. I think that would be helpful context for people. As I mentioned, uh, there's a lot of different diseases that are caused by defects in hematopoietic stem cells. Uh, and as a community over now many years, um, we've shown that we can cure these uh, diseases through replacement of hematopoietic stem cells. A majority of the work to date has been uh, using uh, hematopoietic stem cells from healthy donors that don't have genetic defects. Uh, but the problem with doing that um, uh, is uh, twofold. Uh, one is that one has to completely um, uh, immunoblate um, uh, the host's uh, immune system so they don't immunologically reject um, uh, the donor cells. Uh, and then the other is the potential potential concern for graft-versus-host disease, which is this awful immunologic reaction um, from a donor graft that can affect um, a patient's entire body, uh, but most profoundly cause pretty significant damage damage, um, uh, to skin, gut, uh, and liver. And so there's been a big interest in the community to move away from allogeneic donor grafts uh, and instead work on patients' um, uh, own hematopoietic stem cells um, uh, through autologous gene manipulation strategies. 
And so taking patients' own cells, correcting them using a variety of different methods, and then infusing them um, uh, back uh, into patients. Uh, and we've seen uh, a lot of success with these types of approaches um, uh, using lentiviral therapies, and now are starting to see the advents of other types of uh, gene editing, um, uh, base editing, uh, and other types um, uh, of gene manipulation strategies that are very promising. Uh, but the issue that still remains is you have to take the stem cells out, um, uh, correct them, but then you also have to um, uh, put them back into patients. On the taking the stem cells uh, out, um, uh, we have some great ways of doing that, although I think we can still do better. And that's where um, uh, the Magenta 145 um, uh, compound um, has the potential ability to better uh, mobilize um, uh, more um, potent um, uh, stem cells. But we do have some ways of doing that today. On the gene manipulation side, um, uh, as uh, you mentioned, um, there's a lot of work being done in that area. Uh, and then on the infusion back into the patients, um, there's two pieces to that. Um, uh, one is the actual putting it into the patient. And we are uh, very blessed in this field and that these hematopoietic stem cells know how to get from the blood into the bone marrow. And so that's one of the easiest parts of this process. And um, we literally infuse them the same way that we infuse um, a red blood cell transfusion. But in order to get them to engraft, uh, we do have to prepare patients. Uh, and so today that is done um, uh, with chemotherapy, uh, which again is very damaging um, uh, to patients and causes a lot of toxicity uh, and complexities associated um, uh, with these processes. And so the agents um, uh, that we've been developing for improved conditioning uh, can both be uh, used in the improved treatment with allogeneic grafts, but also for autologous uh, gene-modified grafts. And um, we're seeing a lot of interest um, uh, from the gene therapy and gene editing community uh, amongst um, uh, use of these types of agents. And you see that through some of the partnerships um, uh, that Magenta has established um, uh, with both Beam and Avro uh, as an example. Um, uh, and um, uh, there have been lots of folks that have been approaching us uh, in similar veins uh, because there is a tremendous opportunity to then make these types of uh, gene therapy and gene editing strategies much safer um, by combining them um, uh, with non-genotoxic uh, antibody based Based, uh, conditioning uh, like the MGTA 117 um, uh, agent. So, you know, Magenta isn't the only one working on this, and your work has been featured in, in many companies. Um, so, moving over and shifting focus maybe to Jasper Therapeutics. So, can you tell us a bit about how you got involved with Jasper? Yeah, so Jasper Therapeutics um, uh, is really based off of some early work that came out of our efforts here at Stanford uh, when I was a graduate student uh, in Professor Irv Weissman's lab. Uh, I like to think of it as the generation one uh, of antibody-based conditioning. Uh, when, when we were initially pioneering this concept, we started to work with a proof-of-concept agent um, uh, that was an antagonistic anti-CD117 agent and showed that in, in immunocompromised mouse models, um, uh, a surrogate agent um, uh, to Jasper's agent uh, could be effectively used as a safe and uh, non-toxic conditioning uh, strategy. And based upon those positive findings that we had in uh, immunocompromised mouse models, we had a really nice science paper uh, and then got excited about taking that strategy forward uh, into patients uh, because the antagonistic uh, mouse antibody um, uh, worked in certain settings. Um, uh, and given the high needs um, uh, in uh, this area and in these patients, uh, we wanted to find a surrogate that could work the same way um, uh, and then actually identified uh, that Amgen had a similar agent against uh, human CD117 and so as a graduate student um, uh, with my PhD advisor, Irv Weissman, um, we actually contacted Amgen uh, and asked them if we could get access um, to this agent that we found out that they had, that they had developed for a completely different um, uh, indication uh, and established a collaboration with them uh, and then brought in a Stanford colleague, uh, Judy Shizuru, to help advance um, uh, that project forward. And so that's really um, where the foundation behind uh, Jasper came from. Uh, Stanford had uh, then gotten a grant from the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine to push that agent forward. Uh, and so we took that Amgen agent uh, and launched a trial in patients with severe combined immune deficiency um, that is excitingly showing beautiful safety data and early efficacy data. And then uh, the group around Jasper took that agent uh, out of Amgen and licensed it and is now advancing it um, uh, as a renamed uh, JSP191 agent from the original AMG191 uh, agent. Again, I think that uh, there are lots of opportunities in this field um, uh, for um, making an impact and for changing the way that we uh, do our current care. And um, I do think that the JSP191 uh, agent has some activity, especially in the immunocompromised setting. Um, uh, our group here at Stanford is also running an investigator-sponsored trial in Fanconi anemia, which is, um, again, the disease that we talked about earlier, uh, where patients have extreme sensitivities to uh, DNA damaging agents. And so there are opportunities um, uh, to use um, uh, this agent. Um, and I do think that in certain settings, it will show some efficacy based upon our preclinical data, but it really isn't a very powerful approach. Um, uh, and when, again, we've compared the different approaches head to head in mouse models, the antibody drug conjugate is far superior. 
And Jasper just released um, uh, some data at the TCT conference um, uh, testing their agent in patients uh, with uh, MDS and AML. Uh, and unfortunately, there were several patients that had relapses, and they uh, have not fully disclosed um, uh, if the agent itself has any activity uh, in depleting um, uh, the actual uh, MDS or AML cells. And they said that they had uh, garnered um, that data, but they haven't looked at it yet and haven't reported it, um, which makes me a little bit nervous. Um, but again, I think that there are a lot of patients who need improved therapies. There's an opportunity for it to be effective, uh, but we're also glad that there's other approaches um, that are being developed that might be even more powerful uh, as this initial agent um, was really uh, taken from a completely different indication and wasn't optimized for this use. But it's amazing that in certain settings, we're starting to see it still have some activity and some utility. And in that data that you mentioned, I was actually just looking at it over, and one patient they mentioned had um, late onset grade three, four Q GVHD. Did that concern you, or was it only sort of the uptake in inactivity that was concerning? Yeah, so I think um, the graft-versus-host disease is more caused uh, from uh, the inflammatory agents that are still being given um, uh, to these patients. Um, uh, and in this trial, uh, specifically, they're still giving patients total body radiation. And in fact, they increased it in these patients. So initially, they were giving 200 gray. Now they're giving 300. And they're also giving fludarabine. Um, uh, and um, the combination of that inflammation that is caused by those agents, plus these allogeneic grafts, I think will cause some graft-versus-host disease. And so it doesn't totally um, uh, surprised me. I think we need to eliminate the use of those agents um, uh, by using more powerful agents than can be used as standalone agents uh, or with other non-genotoxic agents. Um, uh, that's where we'll really see um, uh, profound changes uh, in the rates of graft-versus-host disease. We had a beautiful paper a few years ago uh, in mouse models uh, showing that when we gave our antibody drug conjugates in combination with antibody-based immune suppression, uh, we could get completely mismatched grafts uh, to engraft um, with stable long-term chimerism without any graft-versus-host disease. And that's where we hope to see the field uh, move to, uh, is being able to do these types of uh, transplant procedures without causing any inflammation, not using any genotoxic agents. And then I think we'll dramatically see decreases um, uh, in the graft-versus-host disease um, uh, as well. But I think, again, the bigger problem um, uh, with the JASPER trial is that there were some patients um, uh, that had relapse. Um, uh, they did have uh, the one patient um, uh, with unfortunate um, um, uh, death, um, uh, bad outcome, um, uh, and then uh, also um, uh, just the fact um, that it is still a suboptimal um, uh, regimen that does have uh, some genotoxicity concerns. So moving on, because there's so many companies we can talk about, but let's move on to 47. That was acquired by Gilead in, in 2020 for about $4.9 billion. It's an immuno-oncology company, focuses on novel checkpoint therapies for cancer, um, especially targeting that CD47 pathway, um, and it wants to engage macrophages. So obviously you were involved in the company. I think it was the, the patent maybe for 47, but would love to hear a little bit more about your involvement and, and why macrophages maybe and specifically CD47 were really interesting for you. Yeah, so I wasn't as involved um, uh, in the 47 uh, effort. Uh, they actually spun that off when I was in Boston uh, completing my clinical training uh, out there. But 47 uh, did license one of my graduate school uh, patents uh, and then similarly is pursuing a 117 uh, program uh, that they had disclosed. Uh, the company, as you mentioned, was acquired by Gilead in 2020 in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, and I don't have great insight on what they're uh, doing uh, now. I'm sure they were very busy with lots of different things. But uh, it was um, wonderful to see um, that they similarly have been passionate about this area and uh, seeing uh, advances on the conditioning front. Um, uh, and so uh, now we have many different efforts that are working on uh, improved uh, non-genotoxic uh, conditioning, um, uh, really trying to do targeted approaches against hematopoietic stem cells rather than these broadly uh, ablative approaches. And I think um, uh, we have multiple shots on goal here um, that will uh, ultimately transform this field. And so it's been uh, fun and exciting um, uh, to see these initial concepts and initial studies um, uh, that work so well in mice uh, really move forward um, uh, in profound ways. Uh, now with clinical data in patients and many uh, agents uh, approaching patients uh, in the near term as well. Right. So another one, I don't know how you have time to do it, but um, Third Rock Ventures. So uh, consultant there as well. Um, Third Rock Ventures, for anyone who doesn't know, is a healthcare venture firm. You advise companies, also help in company creation, and you've been involved in some really, really interesting companies. Um, so maybe let's do just kind of like a speed round to discuss some of the highlights there. So Firstly, global blood therapeutics. Uh, so, you know, 
very interesting company focused on hemoglobinopathies and sickle cell, beta thalassemia specifically, maybe. Um, so the company said, I, I thought this was interesting, that they wanted to focus on the indication and then find the right drugs for it rather than the other way around, which is what most companies kind of do. You know, it's an interesting premise. What do you think kind of about that premise from a, a company formation perspective? Um, and maybe a little bit of, of uh, context on, on your involvement in the company would be interesting to hear too. Yeah, absolutely. So Third Rock has been a fantastic uh, group to work with. I consulted with them for almost seven years and had a wonderful run uh, working with a lot of great people there on a lot of uh, great companies uh, that have been uh, highly impactful and are doing great things um, uh, for patients. And I first um, started working with them uh, actually right after uh, we had done the work um, with the Amgen agent around the CD117 antibody-based conditioning, um, where I got disheartened by how slow and inefficient the academic system uh, was to really take uh, drugs and translate them into therapy for patients. I think we're much better now than we were uh, back then, uh, but we really didn't have the infrastructure uh, to do that very effectively. Uh, plus, the incentives uh, weren't aligned, um, uh, and we didn't have as much people, as many people um, with expertise in, in drug development on the academic um, uh, side. Uh, and so I wanted to learn um, uh, those skills and wanted to work with people um, uh, that had developed them in various different ways and started to work with Third Rock on understanding how they do company creation and how I could be helpful um, uh, in those efforts. And GBT was the first um, uh, effort that I had uh, worked on together with Charles Holmesy uh, and Craig Neer, um, uh, who were passionate about trying to do something different for sickle cell. Um, uh, and uh, specifically, uh, Charles uh, is a physician and a cardiologist and kept relating back um, to his experience in taking care of these patients, um, where we really had nothing to offer them um, uh, but pain medications uh, and IV fluids, and pressured us um, uh, to think about, could we do something better and put together a small team of folks to explore the area and think about where there was some innovative science that we could build upon. Uh, and it was really remarkable um, uh, to go from concept of sickle cell is bad, I wonder what we could do, um, uh, to a drug um, uh, that has looked so amazing over a very short period of time. Uh, and to put things into context, um, uh, you know, we had started this relationship um, with Amgen around the AMG191. That drug had been in patients already for a completely different disease indication showing safety. And it took, I think, seven years to go from that to actually launching a transplant study in patients with severe combined immune deficiency. Um, uh, whereas working with the Third Rock group and at GBT, we went from sickle cell is bad, I wonder what we could do, um, uh, to having a drug in patients in four years. And so I think that really shows um, uh, that if you put uh, talented and passionate people together with the right resources and um, uh, the right structures to really incentivize collaboration in uh, profound ways, um, you can do things incredibly um, uh, efficiently. Um, uh, and the GBT small molecule, I think, is very powerful at unsickling sickled blood cells. Uh, and there is a lot of opportunity to use that for the benefit of patients, which we're now seeing through the clinical data. And although we're really excited about curative um, uh, approaches for this disease as well through the various different types of hematopoietic cell manipulation therapies, I do think that there's a huge opportunity to treat these patients prior to those types of um, uh, agents to uh, really decrease the inflammation in their marrow, decrease their sickling, or for patients who don't want to move forward um, uh, with transplant procedures, especially today um, when they do have these genotoxic conditioning agents that lead to infertility and all sorts of other um, uh, comorbidities um, uh, to treat them um, uh, with uh, the GBT agent. Uh, either for life or for an extended period of time uh, prior um, uh, to improved transplant procedures. You definitely answered my next question, which was um, the company has a daily oral for sickle cell. And so, you know, just thinking about a daily oral versus, you know, a gene editing therapy, we talk about a lot for sickle cell, um, you know, how would the market kind of respond to both of those opportunities? But I think you did a nice job of, of you know, kind of laying out what, what kind of the promise could be for that. So that that's really helpful. Maybe to go to the next one, uh, Bluebird Bio, which we have heard a lot about. It's It's been in the media certainly a lot the past year. They're a gene therapy company focused on, at least at first, hemoglobinopathies. Certainly, we've, we've seen them have some, some major setbacks, unfortunately, um, with their lentiviral vectors. But maybe it would be helpful just to get some context. So, you know, how are you involved in the company what are you sort of seeing as as being someone who was very involved maybe in the beginning, but maybe not as much now uh, in terms of their setbacks for their serious adverse events that obviously were were connected to the lentiviral vectors? 
Yeah, so Bluebird was launched um, uh, long before I joined the Third Rock team, uh, and so they were already an existing company, uh, given my background in hematopoietic um, uh, stem cell uh, therapies um, uh, and non-genotoxic conditioning. I helped the company um, uh, in some smaller ways, uh, but have been following them very carefully over the many years. And I think that they have a lot to be proud of. They've really been one of the pioneers um, in gene therapy and have some beautiful data um, uh, that they've been able to help a good number of patients. I actually just chaired a session at TCT um, uh, where there were two presentations on the long-term follow-up of patients um, uh, using um, uh, the Bluebird gene therapy for beta thalassemia, showing beautiful long-term efficacy in those patients um, uh, and nice uh, safety. I do think that they're getting a little bit of a hit just because there are um, uh, newer approaches uh, that are in development, but we don't know what the safety and efficacy profiles of those truly will be, whereas uh, Bluebird has a longstanding history of treating patients and we have a much better understanding um, uh, of what the uh, therapeutic profile um, uh, of their approach looks like. And I think that there are opportunities for them to continue to work with others in the field um, uh, to move that therapy forward and to um, enable its use in many more patients, um, uh, but to also uh, take all of their learnings and, and work with others on, uh, on new approaches that potentially may be better. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great a great summary. Yeah, and, and we've seen the data, which looks promising, but obviously, um, yeah, the company has had um, you know several setbacks, but it doesn't mean that the newer modalities won't have some challenges as well in the future. Speaking of a newer modality, um, Editas, you were also involved in the company. We've spoken about Editas a lot on this podcast. So it's obviously a gene editing company. They use you know, CRISPR-Cas9 as well as CRISPR-Cas12a. Uh, their first focus was an LCA10, which is an eye condition which can cause blindness. And that's their first clinical indication. Just curious, you know, how did you advise Editas? What was kind of your involvement in the company? Were you part of that founding team and, and kind of any updates on, on what you think of the company to date? Yeah, so um, uh, Editas was a super exciting company um, that really was the first of its kind uh, to go into the gene editing space using the CRISPR-Cas9 system. And I was part of an initial group of folks that were exploring opportunities um, to put a company together, um, uh, working with Third Rock um, and a few of the other uh, investment funds um, that were excited about the space and working with a number of the academics and clinicians um, uh, that had been uh, working in those different types of areas. We were very proud of the team that we put together uh, and the approach uh, to really try to take this um, new technology uh, and transform um, uh, the care of patients. Editas, similar to many of these companies, has a long pipeline of different disease indications um, uh, where they hope to be uh, very impactful. But the uh, LCA12 um, uh, eye condition, uh, I think, is a particular unique opportunity um, uh, to use this type of therapy uh, in a way um, uh, that will be very important for patients um, uh, that have currently no treatment options um, uh, available. And so, I think that um, uh, part of the drive um, uh, for moving um, uh, this treatment forward in that disease uh, is that otherwise these patients go blind and could we do something that really um, uh, would transform um, uh, their care and this uh, technology had really that potential. It's been interesting to see um, uh, other groups going after diseases um, uh, that have alternative therapies and it's been surprising just how receptive the community has been um, uh, to uh, gene editing um, and how quickly um, uh People have used this in so many different contexts to become comfortable with it. I think the prior conversation around uh, Bluebird is a very interesting one. Uh, we have so many different ways um, uh, of uh, trying to uh, treat um, uh, sickle cell anemia. Um, uh, and do you use a CRISPR-Cas9 or do you use a lentivirus as an example? We have a lot more data with lentiviruses. You know, is it um, uh, appropriate to try something brand new when there is something that works so well? But the field has seemed to feel really comfortable um, moving with that, um, uh, and patients are enrolling on those trials. But for diseases um, uh, such as uh, LCA12, there really is no alternative, um, uh, and that's why that company in particular felt that that was such an important disease indication to go after. And the FDA guidance that came out, I think several weeks ago now, um, did say that, you know, the FDA would prioritize or or look favorably on, on programs that didn't have um, alternatives. So I think that's a really, a really good point that you brought up and something the FDA is obviously thinking about as well. Yeah, I think it's really important um, uh, that we are developing um, uh, therapies for patients that really have no options. There's so many grievous conditions out there. And I also understand um, uh, the need um, for developing improved therapies for um, uh, diseases that we do have therapies available for. Um, but it is a trickier conversation. I think we need to be really careful about um, uh, how we consent patients, how we explain risks and benefits. But for these diseases where there's really nothing, um, I, I think there's a, a particular need um, uh, to do something powerful. Uh, I've also um, uh, had the great fortune of 
of being the clinical PI um, uh, on the Rocket Pharma uh, gene therapy trials for Fanconi anemia subtype A. And for those patients um, uh, prior to developing bone marrow failure, we also have nothing to offer them. Um, uh, and you can see how patients really want to um, uh, enroll on trials uh, and try new therapies um, uh, that could transform um, uh, their uh, future care. And those uh, trials have been super fast uh, to enroll on um, for that reason. And I'm glad the FDA is, is following um, uh, patients um, uh, in encouraging the development of these types of therapies um, uh, for these awful indications uh, where nothing is currently available. So another another company that you were involved in, um, you know, curious to know the exact involvement, whether you were on the founding team, consulted, et cetera, but was Decibel Therapeutics, um, company which is focusing on hearing imbalance disorders. So would be curious to know the affiliation that you had with the company. I'm also really fascinated by this company in general. Um, you know, I don't think we focus enough on how important hearing and balance disorders are. But as you mentioned, sometimes when there are other options, you know, should gene editing or gene therapy be some of the some of the first to consider. So so curious on your thoughts about Decibel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Decibel is a very exciting company to work on in an area that was very new for me uh, as well. Uh, as you've heard from uh, our prior conversations here, a lot of what I focused on has been uh, genetic diseases, cancer, and thinking about the blood and the immune system. Uh, Decibel um, uh, is really focused on improving therapies um, for hearing loss, which is an area that I had not previously worked on. But I think that there's a ton of unmet need uh, in that area. And as I started to learn about that, really started to understand even more so um, uh, just how devastating these diseases are um, uh, for patients. The lack of hearing um, uh, or the development of tinnitus can be super disabling. Um, uh, and so um, we had really worked together with a number of different folks on thinking about how we can affect this in powerful ways and spent uh, a couple of years um, uh, learning about the area, talking to a lot of um, uh, smart academics, putting together um, uh, a team uh, that is now developing several different therapies um, uh, focused uh, on improving um, uh, treatment uh, for patients with hearing imbalance disorders. At the time, it was really the first of its uh, kind. Now, there are several other companies in this space, and I'm glad the area is getting more attention. Um, uh, but prior to Decibel, um, uh, mostly um, we just had hearing aids that were available. So not sure how you have time, <laughs> but you're also an advisor to some other companies. Um, one example is Beam Therapeutics. One That's a company we've talked about a lot on this podcast and actually recently did a podcast with with John Evans, but obviously the, the base editing company. So curious to know what kind of capacity you were advising Beeman. And then also in reading Editing Humanity by Kevin Davies, who we've also done a podcast with, your name came up in terms of being the one to name the company. So uh, I would love to hear the story of how you came up with, with the name Beam for the company as well. Yeah, so I pride myself on being the godmother of Beam. <laughs> I feel like I, I, you know, blessed it from a distance. Um, uh, it's been a great company to work um, uh, with, uh, and I'm very proud of all the work that they're doing. Um, uh, but really, my involvement was more on the initiation of the company and through um, my collaborations um, uh, with uh, David Liu, um, uh, who is one of the founders of the company. I got to know David uh, actually while we were building uh, Editas, and at the time uh, we were working on uh, building out the pipeline and thinking about indications where um, that there that. Um, a modality could uh, be really efficacious. I kept uh, telling David that we have to be able to fix mutations. Um, uh, it's not just enough to be able to cut out portions of genes. And uh, a couple of years later, David came back and said, I think we have something that could do that. Um, uh, and so uh, we got really excited about uh, exploring that further and thinking about how that could be um, uh, translated into treatments um, uh, for patients. And as we were thinking about um, uh, you know, creating a company in the space, uh, David asked me if I had any ideas um, uh, for a company name, and, and Beam immediately came to me. Because uh, rather um, uh, than the original CRISPR-Cas9 technology that is more like a scissors that causes cutting, the Beam technology is more like a laser beam um, that goes to a specific part um, uh, of the DNA and allows the exchange of one um, uh, nucleotide. Uh, and then I also liked um, uh, that Beam stand for um, uh, base editing. Um, uh, I wanted the A and M um, to be advancing medicine. I think. David ultimately said um, uh, that for him it stood for and more. Um, uh, but either way, I think it's a great um, uh, name uh, for an incredible company that's trying to um, further um, develop uh, important uh, translational uh, therapies um, for various different types of diseases. That's great. I did not know about what Beam stood for. So that's, that's really interesting. So thanks for sharing that. Also, moving on to another company, uh, Spotlight Therapeutics. So can you tell us a little bit about your role there? Um, you know, were you an advisor? The company, just for some context for anyone who's listening, is focused on in vivo gene editing. Uh, they developed a new class of biologics, which are engineered ribonucleoproteins. Um, the company is called this TAGE. 
and that stands for Targeted Active Gene Editors. So can you explain why this could be potentially helpful um, and maybe why current gene editing technologies can't be addressed um, in vivo uh, without it? Yeah, so being a physician, uh, I think I just see a lot of medical problems, and that's what really inspires me to try to help um, uh, various different types of efforts that are trying to address um, uh, those problems um, uh, and why I've been involved in a number of different companies as an advisor. With um, various different types of genetic diseases, um, uh, it is wonderful that we have the opportunity in certain cases to be able to take out their cells, fix them, and give them back um, through these ex vivo manipulation um, uh, techniques um, uh, that we spoke about. But it would be even uh, easier if we could just administer these therapies directly um, uh, to patients, uh, and Spotlight in particular um, uh, is working on developing uh, an in vivo um, uh, gene editing uh, technology um, that would enable um, uh, delivery um, uh, of these types of um, gene modification techniques directly into patients, uh, which could potentially uh, enable um, expanded access and easier um, uh, use of these types of therapies. And so I've just been doing a little bit of advising, um, uh, helping that uh, group uh, as they uh, continue to progress uh, along. Uh, so, you know, lots of opportunities to help lots of um, different efforts um, that are trying to approach these diseases in various different ways uh, and just trying to use a little bit of my time and uh, knowledge and expertise um, uh, to help them along um, uh, to hopefully develop these therapies more efficiently uh, so that we can have them uh, in our toolbox um, of treatments to be able to give to patients uh, to really transform uh, the course of their lives uh, in powerful ways. Um, uh, because, again, we're very grateful that we have what we have um, uh, as therapies for patients, but there's a lot that we can do um, uh, to really improve upon them. I'm very proud of the companies that I've worked with um, uh, to date that are trying to uh, transform the field in various different ways. Um, uh, I'm grateful to the broader community um, uh, for the support of these types of companies that I think is critically important um, uh, to garner the resources um, uh, to then be able um, uh, to move these types of approaches forward and really turn them into approved therapies and that we have the opportunity um, uh, to then administer more widely um, uh, to our patients outside of just the clinical trials um, uh, that there many of them are being tested in today. So we talked about, uh, you know, other possibilities. Uh, so what other areas of medicine interest you and um, where else do you maybe see opportunities for innovation? Yeah, so I think there's lots of different problems in science and medicine, um, uh, and uh, it's wonderful to see people doing uh, work in various different areas. Um, but one area that I've seen a lot um, uh, of under-innovation in is the women's health area, and um, I've been spending some time um, uh, exploring that space, trying to encourage um, uh, and uh, support entrepreneurs in those areas, because I would love uh, for us to be able to treat some of these women's health conditions in the same way that we're treating some of these other um, uh, hematologic diseases, to really have more powerful um, uh, targeted approaches um, uh, that can uh, transform um, the treatment of these um, uh, diseases. And so I highly encourage um, uh, the broader community to learn more about some of these um, uh, disease indications and to think about um, uh, how we can be helping um, uh, with the treatment um, uh, of women in various different subpopulations um, uh, that don't have the same types of therapies available today as we see in other areas. Yeah, so you just mentioned maybe an example where uh, you were potentially helping a company or young entrepreneurs um, focus on women's health. But, uh, you know, I, I've read a lot about the fact that you help um, and mentor young scientists and especially those with kind of interesting career paths. So I would be curious to know any stories you can share um, about that or maybe even any advice that you have um, for some young scientists in the field that may be listening. Yeah, so I think I have had the wonderful privilege of being involved in many different aspects um, of taking science and translating into medicines. Uh, I don't think that everyone needs to be involved in every aspect, um, uh, but uh, showcasing different opportunities has been important to me uh, in staying on the academic side um, uh, to be able to uh, help support trainees at various different stages of their training um, uh, has been a true uh, privilege um, uh, and joy. And so we have lots of uh, folks that we help here, um, uh, people that are in our research group, people that are part of our different types of training programs, and Stanford just a wonderful place um, uh, to both inspire um, uh, various different types of trainees, but then also enable them um, uh, to do incredible things. And I've had, uh, personally, you know, the great fortune of taking a concept um, uh, around uh, non-genotoxic conditioning, proving it in animal models, and now turning it into various different types of therapies that are starting to transform the lives of patients, and hope to get a chance to do that through more of our efforts, um, uh, but also inspire um, uh, students uh, and early scientists at different stages of their training um, uh, to think about where there are problems, where there are things that they're passionate about, how to work with people um, in collaborative ways to really um, uh, take um, uh, those early findings and uh, translate them 
into therapies um, uh, for patients. And so lots of different places, again, that people can be involved in that journey um, and just helping them find those opportunities and encouraging them um, to really pursue them. Um, as I think we need more and more people in this field that are passionate about it, that are smart, um, uh, that are hardworking, um, uh, to really completely transform the way that we treat patients. Well, I think you are definitely helping with that uh, and will, I'm sure, continue to do. And I'm sure we'll hear more from you in the future. Um, but for now, thank you so, so much for joining. Really great conversation. Uh, and I'm excited for everyone to hear it. So thank you so much. Thanks again for the opportunity. It's lovely to get a chance to talk about some of our work um, uh, and looking forward to staying in touch and talking more about it in the future. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.